1: Welcome, buongiorno, and hello. You're listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and you're listening, you've tuned in to Heritage Radio Network. We invite you to call in to Heritage Radio Network at 718-497-2128. And A Taste of the Past today is being sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Today we have with us I said buongiorno I thought maybe you might have gotten a hint there we're we're um, we're happy to have with us Tony Lidecker and our topic today is Sicilian seafood. Tony has written a gorgeous book called Seafood alla Siciliana Recipes and Stories from a Living Tradition. Great title. Great book. <laughs> Thank <Good> you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's just packed with seafood uh and and the stories about the fishing industry of sicily and i thought I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about how important seafood is to well an island because it is an island and um and how that has formed their identity and actually continued on as a tradition um and who better to talk? But Tony, Tony, how did you choose Sicily? What is there? Are, you have Sicil- Sicilian in your background, or
2: actually, with a, a name like Idecker, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, but I've always had a passion for Italian cooking, and on my first trip to Sicily, I was really taken by how central seafood is to the culture there. And uh, everywhere you go, whether to markets, restaurants, everybody's eating fish, buying fish, talking about fish. Everybody has a, a either a cook or a fisherman in the family who knows what to do, and so it's it's very clear uh, right now. But uh, as I looked into the topic, I found that the the history of that goes way back to the the roots of. Uh, Sicilian history and uh it's as you can kind of see from the standpoint of geography why it's right there and in the surrounded by three seas and so uh, all kinds of it's known has been known since antiquity for the the richness of this of the um the fishing waters and um so um so it goes way back um to the uh to the beginning, um, and uh, Sicily has uh, has always um, been kind of a, a a magnet for for other uh, for really invasions and occupations.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yes, they were. Well, being the largest island in the Mediterranean, and given their location, uh, right off the on the tip of of southern Italy there and next to Europe, they were extremely valuable in terms of trade routes and, and protected waters, right?
2: Exactly. And there's there's a Sicilian saying trouble comes from the sea. Hmm. And referring to that, um, the Greeks were among the first to to take advantage of this. They, they saw Sicily as a giant bread basket where they could grow wheat and Well they uh,
1: had that rich volcanic soil, mm-hmm, right? That's exactly. Perfect for we had talked about that with um with another guest, a culinary historian, talking about how that whole Mediterranean area had that rich volcanic soil so perfect and ripe for wheat.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And and just about uh, everything else, too. There's a a, a a saying by Lawrence Durrell about uh, how uh, almost everybody, everything in sicily there's a corner where almost everything takes everything grows huh. and um so as other um um sort of uh, agriculture came to sicily um it uh, it expanded everybody um the trouble came from the sea but also opportunities because each culture left its its mark uh, the greeks certainly olive oil and and uh Wine vineyards, right? Well, well, we're going to. That's that's what makes Sicily
1: so wonderfully interesting, and and I can't wait to to get into that more. But we're going to take a little break right now, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Tony Lidecker on seafood a la siciliana. <laughs> Welcome back to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this is Heritage Radio Network. And I want to remind you that you can log into heritageradio heritageradionetwork.com to listen to any of the shows that um, have played in the past or any of the shows that are archived on the network. And again, if you have information that you want to share or questions, you can call in at 718-497-2128. Tony, uh, when you decided to do this book on seafood, how, did you do most of your research before you went there, or when you went? How long? How long did you really feel you had to stay? And how many trips did you make? Mm-hmm. That's all, that's always a curiosity to me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I. I I took three trips um, that were sort of intense um, research trips where I was um, talking to producers and and fish processors and fishermen and working with cooks and chefs to really know um, how to get these flavors in the kitchen. And uh, a lot of preparation before those trips, and a lot of research after, because I wanted uh, my book is a a cookbook. I wanted uh, for American cooks. And uh, so these recipes for me were not just curiosities, but something I wanted cooks to be able to reproduce Mm -hmm. here. And sometimes uh, we have very close equivalents to Mediterranean fish, and sometimes it's uh, something else has to be substituted.
1: Yeah, translating any kind of... uh regional cooking from another country to the American kitchen is always a challenge. <laughs> Less so now than it used to be, but the water, the sun, the flavors, there's just mm-hmm. something that you capture when you're there that's it's, it's hard to reproduce when you come right. back. But, but you've I, done a beautiful <laughs> job in this book, I have to say, just right. beautiful. Um but, uh, what so you did so you did three long trips and that's that That was very...
2: probably about 2 months altogether. Hmm. Um so not as like I certainly could have could have spent longer, but I think it was uh, it was enough, and I got uh, an extraordinary amount of help from from Sicilians that I that I met and and was uh, was able to find out what I needed to know. That's fabulous. We before
1: the break we were talking about the different influences of other cultures, and you you have a wonderful quote from Goethe in in the beginning of the book: "To have seen Italy without having been to Sicily is not to have seen Italy at all." For Sicily is the clue to everything, and um, you captured. I mean, he captured it. That was, yeah. I mean, that was that's wonderful because of all those influences which have are, are still evident in their cuisines to, in the cuisine today, right? That's right. That's I mean, they've right. got their the the Arab influence was what always caught my attention, you know, and yeah. from the West Coast, but they had everything else of every course,
2: everything else let yeah. us not forget the Spanish <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and even even pasta Sicily was perhaps the first uh, place that it was introduced and certainly the, the fir- they were the first to figure out how to dry pasta on a commercial scale yeah, and that was interesting. it all over
1: I found that really that mm-hmm. an interesting uh, point that you brought up mm-hmm. well and their fish getting into seafood here they're the fish has always been, um, well, the fishing industry is what supported them. Really,
2: that's right? that's right. And uh, you mentioned the Arabs; they were really important with uh, the tuna um, industry or, or the way of catching. I mean, they were able to catch tuna, but when the the Arabs came, they had an intricate system called um, it's called the a, a, a tonara or tonari. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, for capturing uh, the bluefin tuna and uh, and killing them, and uh, so the the uh, the Arabs uh, brought that system. They they helped them perfect the system for harvesting salt off the coast, Mm -hmm. sea salt.
1: Trapanese, that's the... Yes.
2: Um, They introduced systems of pumps and sluices and so on to do Mm. that more efficiently. And the salt tied in with the seafood because they became experts in preserving seafood. And not only tuna, but uh, some of the uh, species like sardines and and anchovies, mackerel, that we consider sustainable. Uh When we uh,
1: really identify, I mean, I identify a lot of the Sicilian dishes with anchovies and sardines, pasta con le sarde. We'll we'll get into that a little later. (laughs)
2: Mm. (laughs) Yeah, and exactly, and aside from, uh, from being there and ready for the taking, those were the fish that were accessible to people who didn't have a lot of money. Tuna and swordfish were for... Uh, if a wealthy, yeah, huh? you know, mm-hmm. wealthy. It's all fish has always been a luxury, but uh, these other fish were ones that that uh, other people could eat.
1: Well, you mentioned that the the blue tail or the bluefin um, tuna has on the edge of having been fished out. Um, how are they at their sustainable practices? I mean, I know mm-hmm. they always they mm-hmm. always promoted these lesser species, as you mentioned, the mackerel, right. and the, but um as far as tuna and swordfish I mean uh-huh. are they are they practice you know from recent visits practicing more sustainable methods of fishing.
2: Yeah. fishing well the the story of of uh tuna was if if they were still doing them by uh, catching them by these ancient practices where the they waited until the spring and the tuna were were swimming through their waters uh, with tuna being a migratory fish uh and they caught some of them and killed them one by one. If they were still doing that, there they wouldn't have uh, uh, depleted the Mediterranean. Right. It's it's really and from about the '60s on, and it has to do with the the Japanese and the demand for bluefin tuna for uh, sushi and sashimi in Japan and eventually throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's and now of course they're giant boats with sonar and so the whole um, te- the technology has changed and that has uh, have driven has driven them into oblivion. There there are still some tuna in the Mediterranean, but different smaller species. Um, and I would say on the, the issue of sustainability, it's it's similar. I mean, it's a, a global. Problem and they've they um, um, the EU and and Italy and and Sicily they 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 do make uh, um, they they do have some practices but it, it's it's like here it's a little scattershot. it's not as right. as thorough as you would you would like
1: but the preservation methods are certainly something that um, the rest of the the world actually learned from them in terms of, of course, I mean, it had been going on in ancient Rome um, mm-hmm. for centuries. But uh, the salt, salt being one of the integral
2: uh, exactly. ingredients in their diet. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's uh, these products are very high quality. I mean, it's You don't really think of anchovies as being an artisanal product, but it absolutely is. It's all handwork. It's all done when the the fish are absolutely fresh mm. and pristine and if you haven't had anchovies in the <laughs> south
1: of italy you've never had anchovies <laughs> that's exactly the right. taste is just unbelievable they are
2: and they're yeah. they're plump they're fat little fish they're wonderful yeah, an absolute meal well and
1: that's really um when we were talking about salt being um, such an important ingredient but as is the olive oil and and the lemon juice you talk about, the salmarilio sauce.
2: Yes, yeah, that's, that's an example of a sauce, and it's a very simple sauce that goes with a, a whole baked or grilled fish that uh, has a lot of the products that are so wonderful in Sicily, the beginning with the olive whale, Um, a little bit of uh, lemon juice, citrus, which also comes from there, the sea salt that we've mentioned, a little bit of oregano. It's one of the herbs that grows all over the island. And uh, just such a simple thing, but but the finest ingredients. It's uh, fabulous with fish.
1: And in in your recipe for it, you you did give I think it was for the Samarillo or one of them the wonderful method for passing the sauce around and drizzling it on your fish.
2: That's right. With a yeah. with a um uh, with a usually they're using the branches of of oregano and so you it's kind of dipped in the sauce and then you kind of shake it over your fish and uh, you have to uh, to take care of you. You you don't want to bring out your best tablecloth for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's definitely something I'm using this summer. When we, <laughs> out in the grill, we'll do that. We'll That's do right. A, I'll impress everybody with the <laughs> the oregano branch in the in the uh, sauce. That's wonderful. Um, the another another sauce that we associate with Sicilian um, dishes, and particularly the seafood, is the agrodolce, or the or the the style of, of agrodolce, sweet and sour. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what is this? I mean, this is something that's been going on for a
2: while. Oh yes, yeah, and uh, it's very characteristic of of Sicilian cuisine—the sweet and sour, uh, and especially uh, originally it was honey that was supplying mm-hmm. the sweet, and then after the Arabs came sugar cane. And so there's there's a, a taste, and then the sour part can is usually wine vinegar, but uh, sometimes it can be wine. Um, I have a couple of uh, recipes in the book that that are for tuna um, uh, agrodolce uh, prepared, and one is a traditional one where the onions onions are sautéed and kind of caramelized. Um, with the addition of this sauce, of course, the mm-hmm. sugar kind of helps. Helps it. the caramelization. It's yeah. just and the tuna is just seared, and then the the onions are piled on top, and that's a very um, traditional dish. And then I have another one that is from a, a chef who uh, who uses uh, sesame seeds instead and black sesame seeds. Which a
1: Sicilian chef.
2: Yes, ah. exactly. Because she's playing like chefs mm-hmm. everywhere. She's yeah. playing with uh, ingredient, interesting right. ingredients.
1: Well, and of course, agrodolce. We also find in Greek cooking. I mean, so the, and the Greeks. You say the Arabs brought the sugar, and that that sweetened up. But the Greeks, of course, were using that same method.
2: Exactly.
1: Mm, I'm getting hungry already. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about some of these other dishes when we come back um, after this break, a taste of the past. A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. We're happy today to be sponsored by Hearst, Hearst Ranches, and we're on Radio networkcom if you want to tune in to any of the other shows. Our guest today is Tony Lidecker, author of Seafood a la Siciliana, Siciliana, mm-hmm. and we were talking about some wonderful, Tony, Tony, I am getting really hungry, you have to understand. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about Agra Dolce and, Samorilla, and um I, and I was thinking about a dish that I often made, um, Man, I haven't, man, I've made it recently a pepperonata agra dolce but mm-hmm. then of course that wouldn't be it would be Sicilian but not until after the 17th century because tomatoes and peppers didn't even get there until then, right?
2: Exactly, exactly and an, another dish in that same category would be caponata mm-hmm. which actually was originally the word comes from uh, Calponi which refers to a, a fisherman's tavern originally it had Seafood in it, octopus or some other kind of seafood. Hmm.
1: And do we see? We were we we're talking about the Arab influences, and we didn't really um, elaborate on that too much. But the West Coast is is really significantly different now. Have a lot of these dishes traveled, or is it still? Do you still find the regional differences?
2: You do find regional differences. It's a large island, and uh, as in the rest of Italy, people. Uh, tend to make what the specialties from from where they are and from their families and uh so uh, if you 're on the east coast you 're not tasting probably the, one of the great specialties of the West coast, which is couscous de pache um, it 's a fish soup that 's made with couscous hmm. and it was the the Arabs who brought that and uh and they invented instead of using um, meat or vegetables, as in North Africa, they used the fish that were all around them. So there's a wonderful. It's a very spicy, wonderful soup. Wonderful. That's that
1: sounds that sounds terrific. Um, the we were talking about sustainable fish uh, practices, and. You and I had been talking about lobster. Of course, in in Sicily they have the spiny spiny lobster, not the kind of lobster that we um, are familiar with in American waters. But you said there's a lot of shared now a lot of shared um, culinary practices and appreciations for different foods. What what's happening with their lobster? They they're importing our lobster, or
2: um, to to some extent, they what they eat is called aragosto, which mm-hmm. is a spiny lobster. And uh, uh, there, there's a wonderful soup made from it. And they also steam it and in, in, uh, um, eat it in, in aquapots, pots, uh, crazy water. And, and Spicy eat water. It, yeah, <laughs> and eat it more or less as we do, um, just uh, steamed. But because it's so endangered in the Mediterranean, um, they've started importing some some um, lobsters so that's uh, that'll be interesting to watch our our lobsters are are the the industry has figured out ways to to make them more the the harvest more sustainable right so they could probably learn something from that
1: yeah as far as throwing back the little fish (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) exactly
2: Um, i had a question i don't
1: know if you know the answer but you um i had read in your book it was an interesting story you told about one of the um the fisherman's grandmothers or some some grandmother who finally harassed the um the Royalty or whomever into paying the fishermen with money rather than just letting them keep a portion of their catch, which isn't <laughs> going to pay the rent. Obviously, do you know when this actually came about? When when fishing became a, a viable um, paid industry? Well,
2: this uh, you know this this was a story from the folk south. tale. Right. It a folk tale. No, <laughs> this this was from the south from a chef in Marzamemi, which is on the southeastern coast. And uh, a, a wonderful chef named uh, Lena Campisi, and she was talking about her her grandfather and her her father who worked in who were tuna fishermen and and worked for the the local prince uh, and uh, catching tuna and it was the the system that we talked about the the tonaris that are mm-hmm. around still around the coast there. Um, and they were paid in a portion of the the chef, and it it actually was not the of the catch the of the catch right. yes, and it was actually her grandmother who stood up to the prince and said, "They need to get money for this instead of uh, instead of uh, just a part of the catch um, but it was a wonderful story to hear because we were standing in the piazza. Where her wonderful prosperous restaurant is located, and looking at, across at kind of the crumbling remains of the prince's palace, because they were because <laughs> 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 the fishermen were doing very well. Yeah, so it was a, a moment of vindication. <laughs> oh,
1: that's terrific. Well, um, in the second half of, I guess it was the ni- the end of the nineteenth century. Really, the wave of of um, Sicilian immigration into the United States, of course, and many other countries. You
2: mentioned that this was caused by poor fishing. The fishing industry fell apart. What? Well, it, it, the, in certain locales, and uh, one of one of them, uh, two that I would just mention, Maratimo, uh, which is an island off the west coast, and Isola delle Famine mm-hmm. um, near Palermo. And those are very interesting because uh, a whole, uh, large part of the population clear, emigrated many of them to the U.S., and sometimes to the same locale. Uh, a lot of the ones from those two places went to Monterey, California, hmm. and they got involved in everybody's red cannery row by John Steinbeck. So the sardine canneries, they got into the fishing business. They eventually got into to salmon fishing as well. And uh, so they made their mark on... On uh, on cooking and on on uh, the culture in the U.S. as well, but uh, they still have ties to those uh, those places in Sicily, and they celebrate festivals together both here in Monterey mm-hmm. and in in Sicily. So, well,
1: speaking of festivals, festivals are are usually at different times of the year, celebrating different things. How seasonal? Um. Aside from just holidays, right? Yeah, but that's fishing. The seasonal fishing. How seasonal is their fishing? Um, Depending on what's running, I know. Like you know, in here we have the bluefish are running, and when we know which fish to um, when the sea bass, Mm black sea bass is. You know,
2: yeah, there there are seasons, and uh, tuna and uh, was more of the a spring thing. That was another reason it was sort of sustainable because they weren't gorging all year long on tuna and then swordfish more summer and so on and on the east coast when i was there there was a fish called lampuka which is actually very much like our mahi mahi mm-hmm. and that's in the fall so so they are, they are they do keep a seasonal um
1: kind of a fishing industry going to to actually to feed the population who want to (laughs) create those festivals right um the what's one what i find wonderful about um the dishes i mean it just you just really do create a a feeling of being there you have stories about um each of the dishes and where they come from and the people involved and and that really puts a voice um to the book, which I think is, is something that Judith Jones—you were in on a <laughs> of a uh, teleforum we had with Judith Jones, uh, Julia Child's um, editor—and and that she mentions is such an important thing to bring back to cookbooks is that the voice and not just the quick one-two-three, you know, dump and stir recipes, but you really have given a story to every recipe, and and that I find um, wonderfully attractive, and and I laud you for that. If you could pick one dish. That stole your heart in your research and writing of this book. What would you say it is, or could you do that?
2: Oh my goodness, uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's like choosing your your favorite child. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe one of the. I mean, one of the. The uh, maybe I'll just mention mackerel because okay. that's that's a very under under. It's something I hadn't cooked a lot before and now I'm absolutely in love with it. We have wonderful mackerel here and my favorite way to cook it is roasted with and topped with wonderful breadcrumbs with a little bit of garlic and olive oil, a little bit of parsley and it just goes into a hot oven. So it's the easiest thing in the world and the fish is one of those fish that has good omega-3 fish oils, and mm. so it's delicious. Well,
1: if that doesn't make you hungry for lunch, nothing <laughs> will. So I encourage everyone to go out and eat more mackerel. It's sustainable, and it's, and it's delicious, and all those you know fatty omega-3 acids. We'll have pizza at Roberta's, which is pretty darn good, let me tell you. So, um, I, uh, Tony, I, it's been a real pleasure. And, uh, again, the name of Tony's book is Seafood a la Siciliana, and we've been talking about the history and tradition of seafood in Sicily. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. And we've been sponsored today by Hearst Ranches. And you've been tuned in to Heritage Radio Network. <laughs>